0: I wanted to match the aesthetic of the podcast booth. So. into the
1: background. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> it's a camouflage.
1: Meryl out. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, that's a lot more beard than you had last time. Yes, I
2: yes, I, I'm. Uh, I'm doing a beard. I decided I'm doing a beard. So
1: okay. Yeah. I mean, some people just have a like a, an empty spot right here, asymmetrically or something. I I have a bit of a dip in one of my sides. It's... Looks well, good. Rough. Say. Yeah. I'm just And that's it. been
2: Beard Radio. Everyone, thanks for tuning <laughs> in. To Beard Radio.
3: New topic. This is boring.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for hair. Yeah.
3: Uh, Sophie and
0: I bought new shoes.
3: <laughs> it turns out, if you're like a thirty-something woman living in New York, you kind of dress the same as everybody
0: else <laughs> show up. I mean, that's important. It's yeah. Another camouflage tactic. So it is. i didn't see you there (laughs) or maybe not
3: what's up everybody thanks for tuning in to beam radio hello and welcome to this week's episode of beam radio i am sophie de benedetto and i am joined today by co-host lars vickman hey lars hello hello and steven nunez
2: hello and happy new year
3: Oh my gosh, happy new year. It's our first episode after the new year, which is the only reason you're allowed to say happy new year because it's otherwise too late. um, I'm I'm
2: definitely at the cusp, you know?
3: I think that the last day that you can say happy new year is New Year's Day. I think that's it. I think colloquially, right? Like that's the last day that you can like wish the checkout person at the bodega a happy new year, but it's not the last day you could say happy new year to somebody that you like are just seeing for the first time that year. But it always
0: has to be be kind of a joke when you say it to someone that you just are saying, like, oh, my God, I haven't seen you since last year. I actually hate that. I have to say. That sounds very tired. (laughs) (laughs) I would get sick of that so fast.
3: Um, But anyway, that's the perfect segue into today's guest, one of my favorite people. We are joined by Meryl Dakin. Hey, Meryl. Hello. Nice to be here good to see you Thanks. guys. I'm glad that the first thing that you said was agreeing with me um, on my happy new year rule. I think that that is appropriate. Thank you for that. And, and um, All right. So anyway, launching into it for all of our listeners um, who are new to Meryl, I guess. Meryl, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your background in Elixir, what brought you into the Elixir community and what you're up to today?
0: Sure. Um, my name is Meryl Dakin. I am an Elixir developer. I live in New York um, and I have been a developer since 2018. Um, I went to the Flatiron School the year before. Uh, that is where I met Stephen and then Sophie. Um, so I was a student there, then a teacher, and then I worked as an engineer on the team with both of them. Um, and they are really the reason that I got into Elixir. So this is an easy full circle. Um, We started using Elixir on some of our projects um, on the engineering team. And we ramped up there, I really loved using it. Um, It was just a really enjoyable, fun way of learning and of developing. And so I continue to look for jobs after Flatiron School um, that used it. So the last, uh, including where I work now, um, I used Elixir at Frame.io. They had a mostly entirely you know elixir set up there and then i'm at knock now um where we build notification systems for developers and we use elixir for our back end as well so that is where i'm at right now i've been here for just over a year i made my one year in december um loving it and Congratulations! Loving my team. Time flies. And i feel like you just started there that's crazy i know i know it's really crazy um, but you yeah, were like engineer
3: be... number two or three
0: or something like that? I think, I think three. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I was the third engineer
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, when I came on and yeah. we have hired one more since then. And we also mm-hmm. work with lovely contractors from Mimicoite. Um So yeah, oh, it's a great team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool.
3: Um, I know there's a lot that we want to get into and I really want you to tell our listeners about your CodeBeam talk, which is all about building healthy teams uh in terms of like kind of technical practices especially thinking about elixir and the beam but also people practices um but before we jump into some of those questions i'm curious like you were the third engineer or so at knock it's still you know a pretty small new company and this is something that we've talked about with guests in the past like why elixir for these greenfield efforts you know more startup environments like you want to tell us a little bit more without perhaps you know, sharing trade secrets about what Elixir yeah, sure. is helping you guys do there. And uh, especially on like a small team in a new company.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of this has to do with Elixir advocates, right? People that are already very embedded into the community and really love it. Um, Chris Bell started this company with his co-founder, Sam Seeley. And Chris Bell is very big in our community Um, and he chose this for our team. Uh, A lot of the reason is because it's such a great language to develop in. It creates a lot of developer happiness by using it. And it's really easy to ramp up into as well, um, depending on what languages you're coming from. Uh, It's a very human-readable, easy language to pick up. It cuts down our time for development in a lot of ways. And it's just something that makes a lot of sense um, for the people that are building this tool right now. And I think that that uh, is the reason that I've seen it used at other places before. I mean, I remember Steven introducing it to us at Flatiron School, which at the time I didn't know about it, but I remember you advocating pretty strongly for it then. And I, I mean, you can maybe talk a little bit to why you even like selected that for coming from a team that was using Ruby. I thought that was interesting, but I don't think we ever really talked about, you know, why except for when you were pitching it to us.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, one of the, the big driving factors for me was uh, I always like to think that with most things in Elixir, you think Elixir Phoenix, the ceiling is just by default way higher than using something like Ruby. Um, and you don't have to pay a huge cost for it. That's something I go back to. A what lot.
3: do you mean by the ceiling?
2: So if you want to get uh, one example that they use, for instance, in like the original uh, programming Phoenix book, um, was the idea how like there were consultancies built on optimizing Rails routes, right? Is one thing that I think about a lot, right? Like how do I sort of tweak the route so that I can fall into the most optimal path and a bunch of refactoring versus with Elixir and Phoenix, you do routing with pattern matching, right? So it's it's a lookup and it's really, really fast. Um, you can do things like sockets in, in Rails, right? They have uh, action cable, but you get incredibly performance sockets and channels and really good primitives out of the box that are performant by default. So where the ceiling, when I say the ceiling, I mean that you can get a lot with something like Ruby and Rails, not to pick on Ruby and Rails, but that's what, that's what I do all day. But you can then say like, well, how can I make this thing faster and optimize it? You can kind of push off that decision way further out because the tooling, the underlying tooling and the VM and the you know the tools that we build have a higher ceiling. You know we can we can mess around for way longer than than we can with uh something like Ruby I mean even like template rendering is a, is converted to a function which can get cached by the beam there's just so much stuff that you get for free so with those things in mind we're building the messaging platform we're building um you know these this kind of like cross communication app we wanted to have live updates and we're like well our ceiling is we're already hitting like the rails ceiling we have to do a bunch of special stuff to get sockets and live updates Let's do this in Elixir. was one of the big ones. And then also because I wanted to, you know, that's the other thing too. And I, yeah. I, was that I the first
0: it. time that you had used it in a production sense? Stephen?
2: Uh, at, no, you know, the, we built the in-browser IDE. We built two versions. Oh,
0: that's right. That's right. We had that already. I just wasn't yeah. on that.
2: Yeah. We built, we built two versions of that. One of them was without Phoenix because we had to, kind of like, usurp an existing raw WebSocket version. And then we rebuilt it with Phoenix and channels and all of that stuff. Um, so we had some people on the team that, that knew it and I was running classes at night, just sort of like, come hang out, I'll buy pizza. And we were just like, there
3: was like, no pizza disclaimer, I'm not over it.
2: Well, you came late. So, you know, by That's that. That's absolutely time,
3: untrue. <laughs> not
2: true. Came late. It was either pizza or tequila. I forget. But you know what, you know, I would, I would alternate to attract different people, you know,
1: it's interchangeable a good, a substances.
2: <laughs> exactly. Pizza and tequila.
1: Pizza or tequila. You can just have either. It's, it's fine
2: programming fuel. You
1: know. I think that's an interesting thing about Flatiron School. It seems like you lure people in and tell them they're going to learn Ruby and you teach it's them so Ruby. It's so funny because the is such a good word.
3: Sort of,
1: you sort of just funnel off the best ones to do Elixir. There you go. Ask the Flatiron School time. as employees. <laughs> I don't know. Is, is the Flatiron School still sort of a, a place where they surreptitiously train people in elixir (laughs) or did that did that die with steven leaving
3: that's a good question i'm sure it's a very different place um than when we left i don't know what the elixir story is still like there but i think this pattern that like i followed and that merrill followed and many of our colleagues there was like student to teacher to engineering team sometimes with other stops in between and i think that that is a huge part of why um We were successful in adopting Elixir at the school because we were learners and we were teachers and we were excited about it. And the Flatiron School is a place that really, as a student, like fosters that curiosity and that love of learning and that excitement. And we kind of had that same attitude built into our community on the engineering team. And then you're surrounded by people that want to learn new things and that are good at teaching other people about it. And that pattern of, I used the pattern on purpose, because I'm about to make a segue into Merrill's talk, that pattern um, of teaching the people around you is what I think helped us really accelerate and make big strides in Elixir, even though we were all pretty brand new to it. Even Steven, who was kind of leading that charge, um, was doing Elixir for the first time on the projects that he was working on there. Um, And I think a lot of those experiences went into Merrill, your talk at Codebeam about you know, adopting Elixir, building healthy teams, you know, in Elixir and healthy organizations. So I'm gonna hand it over to you and ask you to tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that really was the impetus for this talk. The beginning um, when I was trying to shape it, I was really drawing from these three different experiences of onboarding onto an Elixir team. Um, And I felt like they were pretty distinct each time because the first one, was at the Flatiron School, we were already um, mostly working in Ruby, I was a brand new engineer. And I had the opportunity to delve into this new language, alongside a number of people who were also learning with me. Um, and I think that that's pretty unique. There's, um, it's rare to shift an entire team to a new language, it's more common, I think we see, you know, because it's like a one time thing that happens. So it doesn't, um, we don't see that repeated over and over again very often. Um, usually it's like a team that's in the language retraining somebody. So that was a very interesting experience. And I think I drew a lot um, from this talk around the things that we were doing there at the time that worked for us with the understanding that every team dynamic is different. And this, as you said, Sophie, is a pretty special place where we could count on every person there to really embrace this learning model. and getting on board with it, Um, we were already sort of in a space where we not only knew how to learn, but knew how to teach, because a lot of us had been teachers as well. So I think there are some special things that happened there that you wouldn't necessarily be able to replicate across a different group of people. But there, you know, there were still interesting parts of it that I think you can take away, depending on the size and the type of people you're working with. And then moving into frame, this was um, an already established Elixir company. But I was still, like, I had been working in Elixir, but I was also flipping between Elixir and Ruby and also front end because I was full stack at Flatiron School. And I I maintained my, like, full stack status at first at frame and then eventually went into a strictly back end role where I just used Elixir. And that was a great time for me to learn from other people who had been using it for much longer than me um, in this massive code base that I didn't know anything about. So getting to explore how that code was organized, what patterns there were there set up um, was a good chance for me to see, okay, like, what was hard about this? What was easy about this? What made it simple for me to get around and understand which things felt like huge obstacles um, to kind of learning both the patterns of the team and also what conventions were coming from Elixir. And I think there's, you know, as a new learner of Elixir, you're of, of any language, really, you're not sure um, what if what you're seeing is just like a team pattern or if it's the language pattern. And then coming to NOG, which is obviously more of a Greenfield application and I'm building out a lot of new pieces of it. Um, this feels like a part in my journey as a, a more senior engineer at this point, um, where I get to sort of apply the things that I I've learned so far. And it's really exciting to be a part of a team that is really focused on this um, practice of keeping strong patterns and making sure that our code is organized in a way um, that will make it easy to maintain and teach uh, to new people coming on our team going forward. So I guess that's the background of um, what made me start thinking about doing this talk is like, I have a lot of excitement around communication and the ability to share information, um, the way that that makes things more efficient on Teams and on products. Um, And also like the communication thread that goes from the uh, infrastructure developer all the way to the user, you know, like the ability to use the same language throughout like domains that can be clear and clarified at every level of the product um, is a really exciting thing to me and something that I am always kind of looking for um, and looking to improve in the spaces that I'm working in.
3: I'm definitely curious to hear more like you talked about joining Frame and trying to recognize like what patterns you could start to pull out from these code bases, what patterns were maybe like Elixir or Beam best practices, what maybe were specific to this team and learning those patterns helped you, you know, kind of be more at ease and be more productive and and contribute more. What were some of those patterns, or maybe a better question is like, what are those patterns that you would like people to use? What do you want to see people building into their Elixir code bases?
0: That, yeah, that's a good question. And I think also, like, when I joined, I was also younger or more junior engineer. So I was sifting through my understanding generally of how to onboard onto a new code base and Um, understand where I was in things. And so there was a lot of help that I got from my other teammates and kind of following people and, and seeing what they were doing. I read a lot of PRs and I worked really closely with some of my other back-end engineers to understand how things were laid out. But there was already a really good structure in place in terms of code organization. And I think that that was one of the first things that helped me drill into, you know, my understanding of how an Elixir project is organized, um, and how you can make it easy for people looking for something to find it in the right spots or to add functionality in the right spots. Um, an example of that, I think I talked about this in um, at Beam, was this like separation of concerns for each piece of the project. So coming in from your like web layer, whether that's GraphQL or if that's just your REST um, endpoints, making sure that that is handling coordination between the service layers that it's going to be calling. And then similarly, there's going to be the separation of concerns within the service layers, which is what we think of, I think, as like our contexts, and then our schema level, which will have the actual like, queries that we're running, it'll have the structure of the data that we want to translate into our database. And th- those are really well defined already when I got to frame and we use the same organization at knock. So in a way, I think that coming from those two companies, there's a assumption I have at this point that all companies are structuring their Elixir code bases like this. Um, but talking to other people, I know that that isn't the case. And I'm not opinionated or egotistical enough to say that this is the best way of doing it or like this is what everybody should use. But I can say it's really, really useful to have this ability to know like, okay, this is exactly where I want to add this functionality. I know that if I'm in the service layer making an ecto query like this is going to get messy. Um, Preloading in several places is going to eventually harm my ability to understand which things are calling which, you know, which things have the right data and once it gets to my serializers, especially like when we get to GraphQL where something isn't preloaded from, you know, some new entity that you're wanting to call within the tree. Um, it just makes it really clear to have this like separation of concerns within the organization of the code itself, and I think that was the first thing that helped me to start getting on board with how this worked and where everything was. Um, but I mean, I think I'm interested too, Sophie, if you've like seen other play, other ways of organizing like Elixir projects. I think we've talked about this in the past and like, I'm curious about what you've seen that is different from this sort of like paradigm.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say I am opinionated and egotistical <laughs> enough to say if this is the way that it should be done. I think that's the way it should be done. I think what you're describing is uh, kind of that core versus boundary organization that Bruce talks a lot about um, in his earlier book with James Earl Grey and it definitely comes up a lot in the view book that we are currently revising, so stay tuned for a slightly less out of date version of that book soon. This idea that the core is kind of where the code bo- goes—that is very, we say, certain. And I think code like constructing database queries; those functions are going to behave the same way with the same inputs, no matter what. Um, you know, defining your schemas and your change sets; those—that's all code that is not going to really ever be unpredictable, but I think a good example of code that is unpredictable is the execution of those queries. You don't know what's gonna happen when you execute them against the database. You don't know what's gonna come back to you. So the execution of those queries goes in that uh, boundary layer which you described as the context. And you also talked about that as being the place where you would maybe um, talk to services or external APIs. So, I mean, if, if you're writing a Phoenix app today, that's absolutely how I would expect you to be structuring your code. And I think that as a community we've kind of our way there over the past couple of years, I would say that around the time that you first joined Frame, um, I think we were just starting to coalesce as a community around these ideas of like a core versus the boundary. There was still a lot of kind of confusion and uncertainty around what a Phoenix context even is and what it's most appropriate for. Uh, so I think the work that you recognized at Frame and the work you did to build on that was kind of part of this collective project that we engaged in as an Elixir community to kind of coalesce around these patterns for sure.
1: I will say contexts are not entirely uncontroversial. I wrote a blog post a while back where Mm -hmm. I sort of tried to center on two different approaches that I've seen with regard to context. And both of them sort of say that the default way of doing context, the way that uh, Phoenix ships context when you generate them and so on, is slightly wrong. (laughs) Uh, Which is debatable, but one is taking the fact that sort of um, contexts leak ecto data structures back and forth and that contexts mix both uh, taking the inputs and validating and executing queries. Like there's a lot going on in contexts a lot of the time by default. Yeah. And one approach says, okay, we need to be stricter about sort of taking taking specific parameters and we should separate parameter validation from schema validation. Okay, yeah. That means adding more layers. And it sounds a little bit like what you're talking about, Merrill, is services and uh, schema layers slightly, potentially being slightly more separate than what con- default contexts would be. But then there's what I call the Chris Keithley approach, which is the entirely different direction where it says get rid of contexts because they are a leaky abstraction and arguing that they aren't helpful for managing the complexity and i've found that to be quite liberating like okay but the code can live in the controller then you don't have to go through multiple layers to find it and this is a uh, sort of an eternal trade-off i think in in structuring computer programs, it's like, do I add more layers to separate things? Do I want those layers to be flexible so I can do all my things? Well, then they get more complicated. And, but the more layers you add, sort of the more structure you have, and the more you collapse your layers, the less structure you have, but often the more clarity you have in, the, in a particular location. And it's not clear-cut. In my experience, with experience, I've tended towards sort of, ah, I don't need so many layers. But whenever I'm introducing newer people to a code base that does not have all that many layers, structure can be hard to communicate because there's not that clarity. And I think the trade-off with context is potentially there, like, oh, we you either have a controller or a live view where where you take the input and you like you communicate with the with the filthy outside world, then you have this context layer where where you've structured sort of these are the operations that can occur in my system, and then you have the data layer. I wouldn't say it's clear-cut. and I've definitely seen a few uh, electric code bases that do entirely different things. For example, I've seen some electric code bases that predate Phoenix, and those made up their own thing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, that's really interesting. I think when you were talking just now about tending towards um, a less structured approach and the ability to bring someone into that, I think that is the part where I do get opinionated. Um, It's like not necessarily in the way that this pattern takes its final form because we will continue to evolve this, right? Like things will continue to grow and change as we, you know, grow as a community and, and grow our resources and our, you know, and our code base and our languages. But the thing that for me is always a through thread is the ability to communicate to other people, what is happening in our programs, because that is really in the greatest sense who we're writing for. Um, we're obviously writing for the computer, we're obviously writing instructions for like, this thing to happen. Once we do that, like everything else is for people. And to me, it's for people that are not ourselves, uh, because we will also lose. I mean, and it, you know, it's for our future selves too. But um, you know, thinking about like me in the future, I'm not going to remember everything that I was trying to do here. Somebody else coming onto this project, they will definitely not know what I was trying to do here. So the bigger like step up we can give somebody in terms of allowing them to understand our like thoughts and and our like shape of this project. And then this work, I think that that is what I care the most about. And I think that's what gives us the most advantage as teams that are trying to move fast, efficiently bring on new people. Um, It's a bit, I think it's kind of a product and team centric way of 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 thinking about these things. And it's certainly not like, I think, if we're talking about this in an academic way, or, or how this could be most elegantly presented, that's a different conversation. Um, And it doesn't necessarily align with the things that I'm talking about. But the way that I'm approaching it is, as a software engineering team, what can we do to give ourselves big advantages, um, and productivity and speed and and enjoyment of like working on this thing. And so to me, I think that that's why I would always tend towards something that had more structure. um, Because it does just as a person reading stuff, like that's why we have chapters, that's why we have paragraphs, that's why we have quotes in, in you know our, our written words, like we can see that these things give structure um, and help us rather than a block of something or a very long something to just go through because we're still people reading words. So I think that that is why this appeals to me. And I think that there are valid concerns about what this does under the hood and how this affects the outcome I was like we were talking about like the leaky abstraction of this all you know this can be a part of it but yeah I think that that is what I'm kind of honing in on is the ability to translate this to another person and how they can quickly like get on board and maintain the same thing that we're thinking about because it also becomes easier for them to become like heralds of this pattern if they can quickly understand it and work in it rather than like what you were saying you know when you're introducing somebody to this, it's um, like a, a longer on ramp. And maybe that works. And, and I think that the patterns that we choose eventually, like, they will have different trade offs, you know, maybe something that has a shorter on ramp doesn't give us as much flexibility or, or isn't as clear in the end. But yeah, so I, I still think that this is a, an individual or like a team by team conversation in some ways, you know, what makes sense at the time and how you see this growing forward. I think maybe as a base level, this separation of concerns is what makes most sense to me. And I think what is nice about it is if this is adopted, then it makes it easier for us all to hire within our community um, and to, you know, find people that are already familiar with the way that we're all doing things, which I think, Sophie, you were kind of pointing to before as well.
1: And I think contexts certainly sort of set the initial point the conversation about how uh, an elixir system is structured like there there is a default and whether or not you're sort of following that default model that's maybe not the most important part but you can yeah. say oh like we don't do contexts the normal way we do context this way or uh, we don't do contexts instead what you'll see is this you'll see Fat controllers as as some would call and that also brings a particular clarity you had a pattern in mind that gives you the foundation to talk about the pattern where I've seen inexperienced people struggle the most is possibly where there are multiple patterns at play and that can be quite easily introduced with with elixir if you're not sort of uh, diligent about it because well I'm working on a system where it's like oh there's a REST API and there's a channel and there's a channel over here which is slightly different and then there's (laughs) so like you have these different entry points like oh this is a live view this is a controller this is a statically rendered controller so there are already sort of a multitude of of ways to talk to the system and uh, when those don't all work roughly the same way communicating all the nuances of how how things work can get hairy so yeah i I think the having those sort of defaults and foundations really help the conversation at the very least
0: yeah at the end of the day it's like a a people problem (laughs) because you've got people that are you know, excited about introducing new work, or maybe they are working in silos, or maybe there hasn't been sort of an overarching opinionated approach to how something will work. Maybe you've hired really quickly and like everybody is working on different pieces of this puzzle together. And that can easily drift because, you know, like you're pointing out, we don't have these like enforced conventions. um, And it can really be Accomplished in many ways. So, that is something that teams need to be really diligent about. And that I think is where the behavior portion comes in. Um, Like, how do you enforce patterns and conventions on your team? And when do you do that? And like, how often do you come back to it and try to clean something up or decide as a team that you're moving in a different direction? I think that's a really important part of. Having these code bases remain maintainable throughout their lifetime.
3: Um, I really love the analogy you use, about like the structure that we apply to the written word. Like that's why there are chapter titles and paragraphs and punctuation. Uh, I never thought about before, and I, I'm definitely gonna steal that and reuse that whenever I talk to anyone <laughs> about code designs and patterns from now on. But I, I would love to drill down into that a little bit more. What other Patterns, maybe technical patterns or maybe people patterns have you encountered that helped you or others around you successfully onboard to a team or what kind of patterns would you like to see people adopt as they build out their teams and organizations? I guess yeah, like technical or people-wise.
0: We can get here in a lot of different ways, right? There's a lot of different patterns that people are gonna adopt on their teams that make sense for those teams in particular. Um, there's some that we can name today. I'm sure we can all go around and kind of talk about what patterns make sense. But those patterns have to evolve as your team grows. Um, We were mentioning earlier the Flatiron experience experiment, (laughs) when we learned Elixir all together. And book club worked super well. Um, That was a team activity we did that was great for our group. As we talked about before, we were learners, teachers, we worked well together. um, So we were able to really engage, discuss put those things into practice immediately. I have not been part of a book club since Like, I just don't find it as useful for myself personally, in like, the subsequent places that I've been or even you know, subsequent times that we had them outside of learning Elixir. And so that was a pattern that was perfect for our situation and doesn't necessarily apply in later ones. Um, similarly, pairing, um, when we again at Flatiron School we worked on a project where we worked with another company and the these developers that were not um, Elixir developers and we paired pretty constantly on this project Um, one of the Flatiron engineers with one of the other company's engineers and the way that we ramped up together even you know we were junior engineers too on that project myself I'm speaking about um and another colleague and our understanding of Elixir grew because we were teaching at the time, um, effectively. And so that was a really effective way of learning. So pairing is a huge way of ramping people up as we go. So that's another pattern in place. And then there's something that we do at NOC, we have something called Engineering Cafe every couple weeks where we align on conventions, like we talk about operations, things that have been coming up lately, but we also align on conventions and we have a shared conventions doc that we keep so that we can keep adding to that and discussing things as they come through. Um, and all of these things alongside with some technical patterns we can talk about are the, the, the kernel of it is trying to communicate to other people and all share the same idea of where we're headed. And so anything that accomplishes that within a team, whether that's people are technical is the point. Um, And if we keep that kernel, like, we won't keep around stuff that isn't working anymore. And we'll continue to sort of innovate around what does make sense at the time, like, what's the best way to disseminate this information? What's the best way of with this particular group of people getting us all on board for something that makes sense. Um, In the technical aspect of that, I think that we can carry that same idea of a communication of intent with some of the pieces of elixir that we were using so something else that I touched on in my talk was these different tools we have for communicating the flow of data um, one of them like being the pipe operator another one is pattern matching um, another one is our conditionals that we're using and I think when we're introduced to these like you're not sure necessarily where we can put them and what we can do with them or, or you know you know that you can use them in all these different instances but you're not sure where you should be using them um, and I think that coming back to that same idea of like what is it communicating when I use this thing is the important part of it so if you're trying to communicate that this single piece of data is changing throughout these transformations then a pipe is the right tool to use you can use a pipe in other instances. Um, You're not restricted from it. But I think like that's what is very cool about thinking about things this way is that you can go back to this like, framework of okay, how how am I communicating to someone else? What I'm trying to do here? Uh, What is the best way of me communicating that? And so that's, that's kind of what I was talking around when I was giving this talk is like these different tools that we have and the best way of considering how to use them is to consider how they are going to communicate intent to somebody else.
3: Yeah, I think that's really interesting the way you put that because in your in your talk, which when it's released, we'll add to the show notes, and I would absolutely love every one of our listeners to watch because it is really, it is so excellent. It got rave reviews at Codebeam. You mentioned a lot of these strategies that you've used successfully or seen used successfully, like uh, a lot of the stuff you just mentioned, pairing, book club, stuff like that. Um, But I think you're right, and it's interesting to call out that there isn't just one playbook, one size fits all that's gonna fit every individual and every team. Kind of obvious when you say it out loud. So what do we do, right? How do we build these teams in a way that are healthy and productive? How do we grow our community as a result of that, which will increase Elixir adoption, I think as a result of that. And I think you put it so well and you said the key is communication. You have to think about that as like a first-class citizen. How do I communicate the intent of what I'm doing here? Whether it's with a piece of code that I'm writing or intending to ship, or my efforts to teach someone about this code base or train someone in a new technology, um, thinking about communication first and making that an intentional part of the process of writing code, building a feature, shipping something new, hiring someone and teaching them things. I think that so often as engineers, we kind of treat communication and intent as an afterthought. Um, and putting that front and center, I think is, yeah, that's what I want to see people do. I I couldn't answer the question, you're right. How do you, you know, solve this problem, onboard new people, grow the community, learn something new. Um, but I think that the answer kind of is, you know, be intentional about your communication.
0: Yeah. And I think we can kind of see this in if we look at like the opposite, then we can more easily identify like behaviors that we're like, oh yeah, that's not, that does not like align with this sort of, in you know, first class citizen value of communicating. And I I wanna be really clear that communication is, is really critical to the success of any product that we are building. It's critical to like the health of this project, um, the maintainability if we can't have a product that we have clear communication and like intent around it becomes very hard to onboard new people it becomes hard to maintain like you might end up rewriting a lot of it because people leave and they leave with their intellectual property um so they we can't like access what they were thinking about at the time something was written so it's a pretty critical piece of companies <laughs> just in general and um how successful and what the longevity is going to look like Um, And when we think about patterns that don't support this, um, it's things that we all do and it's things we can all fall into without kind of catching ourselves so you know, even something as simple as like. You know, a really big PR that on a project that we're working on solo. um, Sometimes you can't help that sometimes you have to put everything in at the same time, but. If you're gonna do that, you can think about how to write that PR description. You can think about commenting it out. You can think about making a Loom video, to just walk someone through it. That can serve as an uh, artifact later on for when somebody is trying to figure out like what were you thinking when you did this? Like how did this work at the time? Because I know it's working, but I don't know how. Like that's the kind of thing we want to solve for. And we can utilize things like feature flags. We can use like tools that we have in our you know chest to do this kind of stuff. We're we're a team that works a lot on solo projects and we have our own domains for how things are working. But especially since this is more of a greenfield app, we're kind of always talking about like, I'm introducing this pattern. How does this work with the rest of the system? You know, I want other people to understand how this is working. And I, because if we're going to rotate at some point, someone is going to need to maintain this. That's not me. Yeah. I, so I think like thinking about the ways in which we can sometimes not follow this or not like hold this value in our heads is a good way of identifying ways we can do it better um, for whatever your team looks like at this point. Uh, and, and it's just going to vary so much. But I think that, yeah, having that as sort of like a guidepost is is a really good way of going.
1: Yeah, I think that focus on communication is is a smart one, because I've heard a ton of different companies that are successful and that people respect, say, we we communicate this way, or we communicate in a multitude of ways. But often when it comes to to really successful companies, either particular teams have figured out their own ways of communicating and sort of the superstructure has some ways of communicating, but sometimes you run into these projects and these teams that are like yeah we do everything async uh everyone works on their sort of on their own and sends out the async messaging when they need input some other teams are like actually we only hire locally because we want people in the office that's where we feel that the communication happens and that's how that works and some do a mix of things. I think most do a mix of Slack and Zoom and all of the, all of the different mediums. And in my experience, most people are differently skilled and differently able to sort of absorb information from, from different mediums. So if you're not optimizing for one particular model, you probably need to communicate everything in, in triplicate uh, and in triplicate means the triplicate media Um, but yeah if you're not communicating properly then then nothing will nothing will happen right (laughs) things will happen because people keep doing things but uh, but i think it's interesting because i've certainly heard companies that say oh async everything fully remote we barely know each other and everything is working great Usually those companies are made up of sort of open source contributors that are super used to working with patches and PRs. And some companies are like, oh, yeah, the energy in the room. It's its magnetic. It's, it's fantastic. And it's like, yeah, okay. People, people <laughs> that are in the same place. Yeah, I can see that working. And there's no, it's no right or wrong, except for particular teams. Uh, and sort of thinking that you can skip it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like the wrong is skipping communication in some way. Because I feel like we can all think about, I don't know, I've definitely been in several situations where we're like, hey, could someone text that guy that used to work with us and ask him about how this works? Or um, if they have like the access to something, like that is something that is, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody like doesn't have that shared experience of having somebody like walk away with what they knew. And not you can't download all of that when you leave a place. So working on building that up, you know, in artifacts or at at least like disseminating on your team so that, you know, the buck doesn't stop with you. I was going to say the bus. I was thinking about like the bus problem where everyone. The bus Whatever. doesn't
1: stop okay. on you. That's what they were saying. Yeah. Hopefully the bus <laughs> the doesn't bus stop doesn't. on you. But if it does, you have documentation in it. Yes, exactly. I, I've been the person who left a, a product company that wasn't sort of investing in the product I was working on. And I got sick of it and I left. And I was the person they needed. And I trained a replacement, but there was not enough time and uh, they burned him out. So I started my own consultancy and like, Four months later, three months later, they got in touch and was like, please help.
3: Uh,
1: like uh, Yeah.
3: Very fitting that you're first.
2: We're close to wrapping, but I wanted to ask Meryl how you're planning on dealing with the inevitable backlash for recommending comments in code. Like how are you how are you gonna deal with that?
0: Oh, I just don't read any negative comments about anything I I ever say. So Mark. No. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we we can have a spirited conversation about this. And I, I'm not inflexible. I think like, there's a lot of things that I have to learn and a lot of people I have to learn from. Um, I think from what I know right now, from my vantage point, I think code comments, um, when used properly, are such a great tool in our toolbox. I think that I can see the downside if we're not updating those, if we're not keeping those as living code comments alongside everything, like, then it becomes a false friend, a little marker down the wrong path. But um, what I'm not advocating for is for code commentary to become like, the way you know how a function works, like you should be able to look at something and understand how it's working. I think code comments are there for our friends who are humans to read something quickly kind of get the gist of it. Um, and also know about anything that they might need to alongside it, like, hey, this is being used for these things right now. And like, put a little date, put a little to do um, things like that are are very useful because um, we're still writing for for people, not robots for now. For now. We yes, don't know. For now. That's right. Chat GPT. I don't know. Are we supposed to be scared? I don't know.
2: We should be. But that's a different episode. So yeah, <laughs> Another hour.
0: Yeah. Um.
3: Thank you for that. And unfortunately, we are out of time, although I feel like we could keep talking. There's so much to talk about. Thank you so much, Meryl. Before we wrap, we do like to ask our guests any shout out or recommendations that you would like to make to our readers. Sure. Um,
0: So we have, I'm I'm at NOC, as I said before, follow us on Twitter. And um, if you're in the New York area, we're going to be doing more of these DevTools and Dives happy hours that we've started last year. Um, Just like a fun way of getting together, um, hanging out, especially for DevTool companies, but honestly for anybody who wants to hang out and talk about Elixir and stuff too. Um, And then another thing that's going to be happening in this spring is MPEX Gowanus. Sophie's clapping her hands. You can't see it, but she's excited about it. I'm very excited. Um, (laughs) And uh, more on that soon. So that is something else that's happening.
3: Yeah, we're reviving the MPEX NYC uh, concert. I (laughs) was gonna say conference. Uh, This time coming to you from Brooklyn's Gowanus neighborhood. It's gonna be it's gonna be great. Um, I'm really excited to kind of bring back the MPEX vibe of like a smaller, more intimate conference um, at another one of New York's excellent venues. More news on that soon. Uh, Meryl and I are working with a few other folks to put it together we're going to open up our CFP within the next couple of weeks so definitely stay tuned for that and uh, come hang out with us in Brooklyn that's what we want to do yeah but Meryl we didn't get to talk about the number one thing I wanted to talk about on this podcast can I plug it quickly (laughs) are we totally out
0: of time oh oh, okay I just saw this movie on a plane Um, I just chose it didn't think about it put it on my brother and I were sitting next to each other we were like this looks weird let's go it's called Fallen, 2017. I would describe it as sort of like Twilight, but angels and demons. Yes,
3: it's Twilight, but making
0: angels. Yeah, um, absolutely. 10 out of 10. Fantastic. It's Vibes so are all there.
3: Yep, it's got everything. It's got two brooding bad boys fighting mm-hmm. over who gets to protect her, uh, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is like a very specific, I guess, teen fantasy Oh, you have a question
2: about this movie? Well, no, no. Well, I went in and, and was going to go try to watch it. I couldn't Do find watch Fallen, it. So I think I saw the sequel. I thought it was Revenge. No, there's
3: no one? sequel. We're desperate for a sequel. Are you sure? Because
2: mine had a lot of robots. Is that not?
3: No, there's what no mean? robots. I sent you the trailer. Revenge How could you mess this Fallen? up? Is yeah. That,
2: I think that's a Transformers movie, actually. Sorry.
3: Okay, now I feel like you're just making fun of us. You're missing out on an excellent quality yeah. film. And
2: then I watched the third part, which was like Fallen Kingdom, and that had a ton of dinosaurs in it. And then-
3: No, incorrect, Wrong.
2: Very confused. I mean, I was looking for angels everywhere, but was the dinosaur or the angel? I'm confused.
3: You're missing out. This is a great movie. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I think I had two favorite parts. My first favorite part is when he- um, no spoilers. My first favorite part is when he butterfly swims away from her into like a beam of sunlight after they have an encounter in a swimming pool, and my second favorite part is when her two angel boyfriends fight each other in the sky. And even though they're angels and they ostensibly have magic powers, all they're just doing is like beating the <laughs> shit out of each other. Um, yeah, I can't. Not, I mean, it's so like good. that you know what
1: yeah wouldn't
2: want
3: quality to this quality this i sounds, like this
1: <laughs> this sounds like an ideal <laughs> sort of sequel to dogma but with a entire oh i
3: love dogma yeah why. it's a very different yeah. vibe from dogma i would say well, I'm excited yeah to it find takes itself this is a movie so. yeah this is a movie that does not have a sense of humor um, oh yeah and it. all of
0: the actors are like full adults playing oh, teams so at this boarding yeah. school <laughs> you're not quite sure at the beginning if the yeah. main character the woman that plays yeah. the main character she's in the car with her parents but we haven't been introduced to them to it so you're like watching it you're like what is this relationship between these three adult you thought people? you thought
3: somebody like, was like the girlfriend what, of one of them myself but myself. i think it was supposed to be the mom I, but they're all yeah the same age so they're basically yeah. all the same age yeah so anyway watch fallen don't miss out stay tuned for more updates on Mpex Gowanus. Um, thank you so much to Meryl. Thank you to Steven. Thank you to our sponsors, Graxio, which as you guys know by now, career fuel for programmers, new content, updated content coming up there, I believe on live view. So definitely check it out. And thank you to Lars and his company consultancy that I will butcher because I will, but I'm going to try it anyway, Underyard, And uh, I- I've met your team. I had the pleasure of working with them uh, briefly. We did a workshop together and absolutely great wonderful group of engineers um talented dedicated curious supported each other so well and i would love for you to close us out with any updates or announcements you'd like to share
1: thank you yeah uh and they really enjoyed your workshop so strong recommendation on that one if you want to learn live you talk to sophie but yeah i did actually just now launch a thing under the under your flag and that's the alchemist guild for elixir cto's Uh, so that's a Sort of premium community uh, where if you are a cto in a company doing elixir it can sometimes be a little bit hard to find other ctos that you can share your struggles with and sort of build a peer group and that's what it's for and it's niched down all the way down to elixir and cto or vp of engineering i'll i'll allow a vp uh, but essentially It's for making sure a pretty tricky role uh, does not go unsupported. And uh, I think we're planning some fun stuff uh, for the Elixir comps and try to meet up in in person as well. But it's a Slack community. And if you want to read more about it, guild.elixery.st. So guild.elixery.st, that's the closest domain I could get to Elixirist. Very
3: nice. All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hard work that uh, you put in, in particular, to supporting this podcast, Lars. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. Okay. That was so much fun. That was amazing. Meryl, thank you so much. I'm going to run away real fast because I'm late to my next meeting, but
0: um, okay. i talk to you all soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you guys so much. Yeah.